Like Greg said, what we're going to be doing today is continuing a series we began last week. And so it's just a short three-part series on, on the gospel, godliness, and community. And so last week we established that the gospel is the most important thing. And this week we're going to look at what it means to pursue God, what it means to live a life of godliness. And we're going to do that through the lens of scripture in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 3 through 9. If you want to turn there with me or I think it's probably right behind me here on the screen. So 2 Peter 3 uh, 2 Peter 1 3 through 9. And it reads this way. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been forgiven of their past sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for the beauty and glory of it. We thank you for time to gather as a family of faith and to think on what it means to pursue you and to be effective in our spiritual life. I pray now, Father, that the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts, Lord, would be acceptable in your sight and would bring you glory and joy. For indeed, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, you probably sometimes hear people say something like this. They say something like, I'm only human, or I'm not perfect. And just to to get it out of the way, that's true. We are only human, and none of us is perfect. But having said that, I think that oftentimes many of these expressions are used to defend ourselves from our own bad behavior, right? We do something we're not supposed to do. We do something wrong, and what do we say? We say, well, I'm only human. 
or we say, nobody's perfect. And, and I think we, we sometimes use these as a justification for our own willful disobedience against God. The late, the late Edmund Clowney, he was a, a theologian, a writer, a pastor, and he wrote a book called The Church, really good book, by the way. And in that book, he has a section on holiness or on godliness, and he talks about how Oftentimes we have this mistaken idea that the only people that could be holy or godly are, are like the saints, right? That normal people don't really have this godliness about them. But, 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 he, but he says this, he, he, he makes the case that it's important to, to pursue godliness or holiness. And he, sa- he says this, to be holy is to be genuinely human, to be holy is to be genuinely human. And without, uh, he, says, he says, holiness is godliness and life without God is life without meaning. So he says it's important not to just think some saint can be holy, but, but that we pursue holiness because life without holiness is life without God and life without God is life without meaning. And, and I mean, how often have we thought that, right? thought, well, only, only these special people could be, could be holy, right? And, and so we don't go about seeking to conform our life to God. But he's saying that's what we have to do, right? If our longing in life is to be truly human, that then, then as men and women, we've got to pursue godliness. That's significant for us. And so this idea of holiness or pursuing godliness that we're talking about today, this should be something that that is really important to every single one of us. And certainly, it should be important to every person who, who claims the name of Christ. And ultimately, it should be important to every human being on this earth because we can't really get at what it means to be truly human unless we get this, the pursuit of God. All right, so how do we do this, right? Okay, pastor, godliness, pursuing God. How do we do this? Well, well what I want to do today is to attempt to, to answer this application question. How do we live a life of godliness from the text, from Second Peter chapter 1? And I want to do that by answering three fundamental questions. And the first question is this, why is godliness possible? Why is godliness possible? This is perhaps the most central, the most important question of why. You know, we, we walked in here this morning and we know this. We know we are prone to failure we know we are prone to mess up, right? That's not just me, is it? No, all of us, we're prone to failure, prone to, to mess up. We, we have a propensity to sin. And so you have to ask that question, right? We have to get at this question. How is it even a possibility for people like you and me to live a life of, of godliness considering all of our weakness and, and all of our all of our brokenness, how is it even possible? 
And, and I know, you know, I, I've gone in churches before and you see, maybe you have as well, and you see the topic for the sermon that day, just like today, is holiness or is godliness. And you say, oh, I should have just stayed home today because I'm going to get beat up now, right? The pastor's going to beat me up. I'm not living the life I need to live. I'm sinning too much. He's going to beat me up about that. Um, one person said this. They said when they, when they hear a sermon on holiness, that he feels like a man with two broken legs being commanded to get up and to run down the street. Have you ever felt that way? But notice, notice what the text says in verse 3. And this is key. In verse 3, Peter says, His divine power, God's divine power, has given us everything that we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. He has given us everything we need for a godly life. Now, now Peter, Peter here, he's saying that, that God, God by the working of his own power, that, that God gives us what we need. And, and so when we talk about godliness, when we talk about holiness, we're, we're not talking about you willing yourself to do this. We're not talking about you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps to straighten out your own life. What Peter is telling us, he's telling us that it is God who has granted us, who has given us everything that we need for godliness. That is true, and it's so important to know this and to believe this and to know that today I'm not here just trying to set you up for failure. No, no, because Peter says everything that we need for life and faith and godliness, God has given that to us. Amen? And, and, and all of that is to say that this pursuit of godliness, it's not, it's not a self-empowered pursuit. It's not a, a self-enabled pursuit. It was never supposed to be that. The scriptures teach us, in fact, that it is rather by the power of God. Which leads to this conclusion that, that to pursue godliness, we have to believe what the scripture says about this. We have to believe the, the precious and very great promises of God that he has promised that in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your weaknesses, in the midst of your temptation and your wrestling, in the midst of all of that, that he has promised to equip us in every way so that we can pursue a life of godliness. And you look at verse four. Verse four, he spells it out even more. He, he says, he has given us, God has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desire. So God has given us something. He has given us these promises in his word, these precious and very great promises and if you look at the text carefully, he gives you what you might call here a purpose statement. And, and he says, so that. He has given you these things so that you may participate in the divine nature. Now, he's not talking about you becoming God. You know, don't get, 
a big head here, but, but he's simply saying that there's a way. He's simply saying that there is power. He's saying, here's power, here's truth, right? That God has done something. God has given you something. Dear brothers and sisters, he has given you something. He has made these promises to you. And you think about these promises of God, right? Think about that for a minute. These promises, he says, they are yours. He says, if you know Jesus, these are yours. He has promised you, God has promised you in his word that you have the forgiveness of sins. And he has promised you in his word that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he has promised you that with confidence we can come to him. And he has promised you that he is there to help us in our time of need. And he has promised you, he has promised that that we are fully reconciled and restored into a relationship with God. And he has promised you that in Christ we have a new identity. And he has promised you that in Christ we have a new heart. And he has promised you that Christ in his spirit indwells our lives. And that his divine power is at work in our lives. These are his great and very precious promises to you. And so here's an application question. It's a question for today and for tomorrow and for next week and for next month. And the question is this, brothers and sisters, do you believe these promises? Do you believe them? Come on, y'all believe them? Do you believe these promises, right? He has given them to you. They are yours. They are great and very precious promises. And they are yours, brothers and sisters, uh, all about what he has done for you in Christ. Do you believe these promises? For they are yours. And that's the first point. Why is godliness possible? It's possible because of God's great power and promises to us. All right, all right. That's the first thing Peter gets at here. The second thing is this. The second question is, how, how is godliness to be pursued? So why is it possible? And now how is it to be pursued? And notice the language I'm using here. I'm using this word pursued. Godliness must be pursued. Just like you have been given the power to live it, it must also be pursued. And look at the language in the first part of verse 5. He says this, he says, for this very reason, and then here's the key part, make every effort. Make every effort. You see what he's doing? These are connecting words. He's saying, because of this, because of God's divine power, because of God's great and very precious promises to you, because of what is ours in Christ, He says, for this very reason, make every effort. And what it means is this. Be zealous in this regard. Be diligent toward this in pursuing 
godliness, right? So, so there's a part of this, pursuing godliness, living a holy life, that, that our desire for this matters. We have to desire this. We have to want this zealously and to make every effort to get it, right? You're not gonna see godliness in your life unless you're pursuing godliness in your life. And I can say with all confidence from this passage that you're not gonna grow in godliness until you recognize that there is a divine power available to you. And you'll not grow in godliness without strenuous moral effort. And that's what Peter's talking about. And then you look at the the text again and he goes on to lay out what this looks like. Verses five through seven, he gives us this list of things that need to be in our life to pursue godliness. And so he says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. Now let me take a minute. I'm just gonna very quickly focus on each one of those. You, You see where he begins. He begins in the most important place. He begins with faith. He says, add to your faith these things. So he begins with faith. All of this has to start with faith. All of this starts with trusting in God. And you remember in the book of Hebrews, the writer says, without faith, it is impossible to, you remember? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so we say, God, I trust you now. God, I believe you now. I believe that your great promises and your great power and your spirit are available to me now. I acknowledge you in faith now. That is where this life of godliness begins, with faith. And then Peter goes on to say that you supplement that faith with goodness. Supplement faith with goodness. And and he's, he's getting at the that our holiness, our, our a godly life has to be driven by our desires, by good desires, by virtuous desires, that these things need to grab our heart that are good and that are lovely and that are beautiful. These things have to tap into our heart as we pursue God in a life of holiness. Um, these beautiful things, not the ugly things, not the sinful things, not those sinful desires, but beautiful things, good things. And so to faith, Supplement it with goodness. And then he says, to goodness, add knowledge, right? So, so it's kind of this, this idea, this knowledge is, is head knowledge. It is things we know in our, in our head, and our mind, but it's also, he's also talking about a heart knowledge, uh, an intimacy of knowledge, if you will. It's what the, the, the Bible speaks about where you know God, right? We know him in this intimate way and we want to know him and we want to know all about him and we want to know his will, this intimacy of knowledge. And he says, add to knowledge, self-control and perseverance. And I'll tell you, in all my years of being a pastor, I think these two uh, are, are a place where the church tends to really struggle. Self-control and perseverance, Right? Self-control, self-control. Now we do remember, we do acknowledge that this is by God's power, but but self-control is simply self-discipline in our own lives. 
that we must discipline ourselves in order to be effective in our faith. And and so self-control, you know, by the power of God in our life, self-control simply means that you can say no. You can say no to certain things in your life, right? No to that second look. No to that addiction. No to being greedy or whatever it may be for you that wraps up your heart. We can say no to those things and we we can say yes to the things of God. This is self-discipline in our lives, right? Maybe it's not by your strength. Maybe you can't say no in your own power, but by the power of God at work in your life, we can say no. We can discipline our lives. And then to self-control, he says, add perseverance. And we live in a world where we want everything to be easy. And that bleeds into the church. And in the church, we want everything to be easy and everything to be fast. But, but the truth is that life with God is hard. And so we quit living for God because, well, our prayer, my prayer doesn't get answered as quickly as I wanted it to or in the way that I wanted it to. And so we don't continue to pursue that life of godliness. And so he's saying we need steadfastness. We need perseverance in our life. But we tend not to want to do that. And so self-discipline and perseverance, two very important things that we need in the life of believers in the church. Then he goes on. Um, he goes on to add to perseverance. Let's see. Um, he says, add to that, verse seven, to mutual affection and love. Mutual affection and love. So mutual affection, it's just being kind to one another, right? Sometimes you gotta wonder. Some people just have a hard time being kind, right? But mutual affection. He says, supplement your faith with mutual affection, with kindness, with loving one another around you, right? With being hospitable, with caring for one another. And then he adds, the, the last one is love, simply to say, love is supreme, right? Love is supreme. I won't talk much about that. But Peter says, we're called to make every effort to do these things, to do this list of things, to add these to our faith. And so, again, let me give you an application question for you. And I would just ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing with these things, with this list? And I'm sure the truth is that we all have some room to grow, right? I know I certainly, I know I certainly do. But I'm just asking you to think about these things that Peter lists out. How are you doing with these Take some time today or this week to do some self-examination. How are you doing, right? What are you really struggling with right now? These are things that need to be pursued. So we've had why godliness is possible. It's possible because of the God's power and promises at work within us. How is godliness to be pursued? Well, it's to be pursued by making every effort that these qualities are at work in your life. And finally, and I'll be brief on this one, um, what does godliness provide? What does godliness provide? The last two verses, eight and nine, says, for if you possess these qualities, that list of qualities, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you 
from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed of their former sins. Now, after many years of being a pastor, of serving churches, uh, I can see in my own life and in the life of others that people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, that they may have stretches in their life where they feel unproductive and where they are unfruitful in their faith. I mean, it happens. You may have experienced that, right? It's sort of like sometimes you're at the mountaintop and sometimes you're in the the bottom of the valley and you just feel far from God and ineffective in your faith, right? That, That could be true for some of you here today. Maybe you feel ineffective in your faith. Um, you know, and I, I've seen people profess faith in Christ. Basically, I've seen people, they, they say all the right words. But then they live and they act as if they've never been cleansed of their sin. And there's no transformation. And there's no evidence of new living in, in their life. And so... What's missing? Peter says it's this, because there's kind of a a close linkage here. I'm just going to wait. So Peter says it's this. What's missing if someone's faith is not effective? Well, he says it's these qualities, the verses five through seven, that list of these qualities, the eight that he mentioned, he says, when they are yours and when they are increasing, he says, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in your faith. In other words, as these qualities become more and more yours, it results in spiritual effectiveness. It results in spiritual fruitfulness. But, but notice, he qualifies it by saying, when they are yours and when they are increasing. And there may be, there may be someone here today, and please understand, I'm not, I'm not picking on you, but there may be someone here today, you know, and, and what I'm saying is tough to hear. But I really want to encourage you toward godliness, Right? There may be some of you here today and, and you might say, man, these, none of these qualities are active in my life. I'm not in, increasing in any of these qualities. And I just would say this as a word of both challenge and encouragement to say, you may be deceived. You may think you're following Jesus. You may think you're walking with the Lord. You may be a church person. You may be a religious person, but you may be deceived. And I would just You know, if none of these qualities are at work in your life, and I would just encourage you and challenge you by by saying, move past that self-deception and simply trust on Jesus. Return to Jesus. Rediscover your first love in Jesus. Turn away from your sin and trust on him. You know, I imagine... I mean, of all of us here today, I'm sure we're all kind of at different places on the spectrum of where we are and walking with the Lord and the effectiveness of our faith. 
Um, but Peter says this interesting thing, you know, he says, he, he says, for some people, these qualities are not at work in their life and it gets so bad that he says we are nearsighted to the point of being blind. Now, I'm nearsighted. I have contact lenses in right now, but I wear glasses and, and my, my vision problem is is, is that I'm nearsighted. So I can see what is up close, but I cannot see clearly what is far away. Some of you may have that same, that same issue. Now, as, I get, I, as I've gotten in my 40s, you know, I, I have trouble seeing up close as well. But, but, um, but I'm nearsighted, so I can see close. I can't see, I can't see far away, right? So I get that. I get what he means here. And so he's saying, He's saying, if these qualities are not yours, if they are not increasing, then it's almost like you are never cleansed. And it's like you've forgotten that you've been forgiven. You can't see clearly the outworking of God in your life. And he also uses the language of, he says, it's like you've forgotten that you were forgiven of your sins. And, and, and I would say this, you know, my, my grandmother had Alzheimer's. And she, she had it for a very long time. She spent quite a few years in a, in a nursing facility and she did, she did not know anything. So she had been a very effective woman in her life, very productive woman in her life, but because of Alzheimer's, she forgot how to do anything. She ultimately forgot who she was. She didn't know who she was, what her name was. She didn't know her closest relatives, her children, anybody. She forgot all of that. And Alzheimer's is a, is a vicious and ugly disease and that it does this to people. But, but sometimes I think for, for church folks like us, we can, we can sometimes become afflicted with a form of spiritual Alzheimer's. And we forget ourselves. And we forget who we are. And we forget whose we are. And we've forgotten our profession of faith and we've forgotten our first love and we've forgotten our call, the call to submit to God and we've forgotten the outworking of his, his great and precious promises in our life. You know, and today, I simply, it's just on my heart to simply, if that's where you are today, just to simply call you back, to call you back to remember, to remember our great God, to remember his love for you, to remember your first love, to remember who you are, and whose you are. You know, and you may have walked into this church today and you may feel very far from God. But I just want to say I'm glad you're here. And I would just say there's a promise of Scripture that if you will just come, if you will just come to Him, Come to him like the prodigal son to the father. Come to him and believe on him. And he will receive you with open arms and with his love and with his forgiveness. And he'll receive you again. And that's true. These great and precious promises are yours. Believe them. And let's walk together in a life of godliness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for these words from Peter.
that we've reflected on today. And we do acknowledge, in a, in a way, this is a hard teaching, but I pray that by your spirit, you would work it deeply into our lives, that you would grow us up, that you would mature us, that you would humble us, and that you would draw us near to you, that we would believe these great and precious promises that are ours, that these qualities would be increasing in our life, and that our faith would be fruitful and effective. That we would remember to be who you've called us to be, that we would never forget who we are and whose we are. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.